Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. When I started this podcast, I knew that there was one person in particular I had to have on, and I'm so glad that after two requests, she said yes. Today, my conversation is with Carol Horton, PhD. She is a writer, educator, and activist working at the intersection of mindful yoga, social science, and restorative justice. She is the editor and author of four books on yoga, which if you've practiced with me before, I have likely recommended to you. She is the vice president of the Yoga Service Council, co-founder of Chicago's Socially Engaged Yoga Network, a reviewer for the Yoga Alliance Standards Review Project, and associate editor of the scholarly journal Asian Medicine. She has taught yoga in Cook County Jail, a drop-in center for homeless women, a residential foster care facility, a community health center, and several independent studios. An ex-political science professor and policy researcher, she holds a doctorate from the University of Chicago. I am thrilled to speak with her, and I think that you'll get so much out of our conversation today. So welcome. Enjoy. Hello, Carol. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. How are you today? Uh, good, thanks. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Are you doing any teaching this semester? Is there is there any teaching going on? Uh, no, no. The only thing I'm doing uh, in that vein is I'm on a committee to help develop a, a training for the Yoga Council. Very cool. I'm going to do a, uh, a five-day uh yoga retreat with Doug Keller, who I've wanted to study with for a while. And then I'm also going to go away with two of my friends uh, just for a kind of mellow, fun yoga, meditation, apple picking, going to the Indiana Dunes uh, retreat next weekend. Delightful. I will say for a moment, yeah. you're cutting out a little bit. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm walking around. I'll sit still. How's that? That's better. Okay. So you're having some student time and you're having some leisure time. Uh, before before we get into the conversation that, that I wanted to have today, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background uh, in academia. What was it you did your doctorate in? Oh, in political science. What did you do? What was your specific topic? Because they can get so niche Oh, totally. That's so true. So I was in the subfield of American politics, but within that, what I was working on were issues of race, class, and equality. So um, my dissertation, which was published as a book in 2005, is called Race and the Making of American Liberalism, and it's a very historical study focused on the ways in which different configurations of racial and class identities have intersected with one another historically and kind of co-formed each other and how that's been important politically in terms of social movements and law um, and uh, really had a tremendous impact on 
um, the extent to which socioeconomic equality um, is a kind of successful political orientation in the United States. I've worked with a number of professors who you find out what they do in their dissertation and it's shocking because it's so different from where they've landed ultimately. <laughs> but it, it feels yeah. like you're still engaging with that. Well, uh, I feel like I am and I'm actually interested in shifting my uh, professional writing back to more squarely um, political cultural issues uh, relatively soon. So I'm kind of dialing back on the yoga related writing and looking to dial up on that after I finish some um, current commitments. But um, I feel like I have kept a through line in terms of my uh, core interest. I've always been very interested in kind of social equity issues and and actually in different ways in spirituality, although originally when I was in academia, that was not so much a personal practice orientation. It was much more um, a sort of academic, you know, studying from afar um, kind of orientation. But um, after I left academia, which uh, I did because my husband and I were in two different locations and I wanted to have children and not be in a commuter marriage, I spent about 10 years working in the nonprofit sector, and there uh, my work was really focused on kind of programmatic research related to low-income children and families. So there were a lot of the same issues of racial and class inequality in the U.S. um, in a more applied way. And then when I got into writing about yoga, um, I, I really was interested in originally bringing in a more historical and uh, sort of sociological, for lack of a better term, context to looking at modern practice and contemporary practice, if you want to differentiate between those. And um, yeah, so um, then my work with the Yoga Service Council, which has been the last few years, uh, we do a lot um, on, uh, well, racial issues increasingly, but um, reaching out for um, accessibility of yoga and mindfulness practices into major social locations where uh, it's not as easy to access these practices. So yoga in the criminal justice system, my last book that I edited for the Yoga Service Council was on that. Before that, yoga with veterans. Uh, We've done yoga in schools. Um, So yeah, there's definitely a a sort of continuity that I feel I've had through these uh, many different phases of my work life by this time. Did you start practicing yoga while you were a grad student? No, I wish that I had. (laughs) It would have made things a lot better. But um, I didn't start until I had my first academic job, uh, which was at McAllister College in Minnesota. So I started a class in a church basement in St. Paul, Minnesota, way back in the 90s. And um, before that, nope, I was just, you know, I ran, I went to the gym, Uh, I was really not at all oriented towards um, yoga or anything like it. And when you started your practice, did you see, did you see some of the critiques leveled against it and it's, it's community now back then, or were you just so pleased to have an hour and a half to yourself to not think about those things? 
You know, I started practicing yoga so long ago that there weren't any of those critiques. I mean, they're, they're, um, I feel so old, but you know, the internet was really just starting to get off the ground. So the whole kind of social media based discussion of yoga really didn't start till, um, gosh, well, at least a decade, um, after I started taking my first yoga class and, you know, there was yoga journal. Um, but I'd say that yoga at that time when I started was still so, marginal you know there weren't a lot of studios um you kind of had to seek it out uh i don't think lululemon had been founded it just wasn't a thing in the same way so when did you start to weave together yoga and academia was it out of an impoverishment of conversation that you felt the need to do that yeah so there was a confluence of just personal circumstances and how the field of yoga had evolved since I started. So as I said, when I started, it was quite marginal still. And then I kind of got more into it and more into it, and more into it. And just as I was getting more and more into it, it got more and more popular. And so, uh, although I was just a, a regular old student of, of, you know, weekly yoga classes, I was my kind of social scientist self was very interested in seeing this growth um, increasingly that was really kind of on track with my own personal interest um, in terms of, you know, it's increasing social importance. And then I got knocked off my second kind of policy researcher type career track very unexpectedly when the, the office I was working in had a lot of kind of politically driven politics in the office politics sense turmoil. There was a lot of turnover um, and it just, to make a long story short, kind of ejected me out of there in a way that I really didn't expect. And so that led to a certain personal crisis and some health problems. And I ended up saying to myself, you know, I didn't expect to be here out of a job, but I've got this extra time and space now. So I'm going to do this yoga teacher training that my teachers and friends have been saying that I should do for quite a few years now because I'd gotten very involved in the forest yoga community in Chicago as an Anna Forest, um, one of the longtime American yoga teachers. Um, so I did that training in, I guess it was 2008. And then I finished the training. I still was unemployed. And I thought, well, I should really just go back and find a job doing what I was doing before. But I had all these questions and things I really wanted to study more in this kind of social and historical contextualization of the yoga scene that I had become so involved in. And at that time, there really wasn't much. I mean, there, there was beginning to be an online discussion, but I looked around and I saw, hmm, well, there really haven't been any books published about the history of how yoga came to the U.S. and came to be popular. So, hey, I could do that. And I actually wrote a book proposal and got it accepted by two agents. That was going to be my book project. But then right after I got it accepted, like three books on the history of yoga <laughs> coming to America came out. You know, that was in 2010. And I thought, wow, you know, 
there's this kind of zeitgeist that I'm a part of where other people are seeing there's a lot here that just hasn't been really discussed mm-hmm. or written about. But since this book came out, I really need to change my orientation. And I had also gotten involved in the whole then new and burgeoning blogging world about yoga. It's about 2010. And at that time, it was really fresh and exciting. I was connecting with lots of people. There were lots of interesting discussions going on. Uh, I was very actively involved. I had a blog and just took out, took off real fast. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to do the history book, I'm going to do something more eclectic that really looks into the questions that really um, are motivating me, which was sort of a take on the historical question of how did this get here and become so popular and how do I think about it vis-a-vis its ancient roots, um, the kind of personal, spiritual, and psychological question of why does doing these shapes on a rectangular rubber mat have this profound impact on my mind and body? And I actually got comfortable using the word spirit, which I wasn't before because I just experienced so many changes over the course of about, you know, by that time was maybe um, over 10, 12 years of doing a yoga practice that I had a lot of questions on that front. And then finally, the more kind of sociocultural front, like what's happening as yoga gets absorbed into consumer culture, all of this imagery is coming out about, you know, the yoga body. The, it's really like a, a sort of fashion or fad in a way that wasn't before. That's having impact on the way we experience this practice and the way other people think about it and how, how does one navigate all that. So I did my yoga PhD book um, subtitle, Integrating the Life of the Mind and the Wisdom of the Body, instead of the historical book to really kind of um, boil down my best answers to those very big questions uh, in writing, which gave me a way to, to lead myself through the process of really figuring out what I thought. And then at the same time, since I had connected with so many people through the blogosphere, I decided to spearhead a collection of essays on um, contemporary yoga in North America because I saw so many interesting ideas that were coming out as blogs but not really being developed into a more um, essay-style format and polished, and I felt that it was – an opportunity to kind of capture this moment, develop it a little further, and then have it something um, more lasting than a series of blogs. And so that's at the same time I was doing the yoga PhD book. I worked with uh, Roseanne Harvey, another blogger. And Canadian. Um, a Canadian, yes. Canadian. <laughs> then she was living in Montreal. Now she's in Victoria. Uh, she had and still has the It's All Yoga Baby blog. And um, we had connected through the blogosphere, and um, I recruited her. And then we together worked on kind of pooling our ideas about um, bringing in, I believe it was about a dozen um, other people to contribute essays and did that 21st century yoga, culture, politics, and practice book. So those two books were kind of companion works that both came out in 2012. And they came... They came at just the right time. I've had, I'm listening to you, I've had a flood of memories 
Because when I, in 2009, I had done my teacher training, but I was in a PhD doing cultural food studies, but it was a cultural studies program, which has a, a long history in Britain uh, in a Marxist context. Mm-hmm. Stuart Hall and that. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, Although right. no one familiar with it, no one told us that going in. <laughs> uh-huh. The university really positioned it as you know, are you bummed out by uh, by institutional boundaries? Then you can do this this particular program, and it's as interdisciplinary as you want to. So it was a little shocking when you got into it, mm-hmm. but I had. So I had done my teacher training and I was in this program and there were people doing fascinating work in uh, indigenous studies and post-colonial studies and LGBTQ and and every interdisciplinary cross-section that you can think of and gender studies. And, And so it was a lot of... It was a lot of terms. It was a lot of thoughts that I hadn't been exposed to before. And, uh, and people were deeply passionate because they had historically felt excluded within the university and, and finally felt that they had a program uh, within which to do their work and have a platform. But at the same time, the yoga teacher training had exploded all of these things I thought to be true, but also was hosting classes, you know, entitled Shakti Flow while people, you know, put henna on themselves mm. and, you know, chanted Ganesha mantra. And, and so now I realized that it was really probably very overwhelming for me because I struggled to reconcile the two and, and just this one year had, uh, the realization that I didn't know what I didn't know. And that I was so confused as to what the next step was to take, I was hampered by the pressure to do good work mm. because I knew that the yoga community didn't really have a solid research-based history of itself. Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch the documentary Why Yoga? Hmm. I don't think I've seen that one, no. There's a, a kind of embarrassing little montage of very well-known teachers being asked how old yoga is. Oh, yes. <laughs> I do remember what you're talking about. I actually referenced that in my yoga PhD book where they're, they're how old is yoga? And they say, oh, it's 5,000 years old. And somebody's like, oh, 10,000 years old. They're just kind of making all these wild guesses, that one. Yeah. And, and someone mm-hmm. finally says, I don't know why I think that. Yeah. <laughs> Which I do honest. remember that. Yeah. And so the books, the yoga histories, uh, I'm thinking of, of Mark Singleton's book right. uh, and Steph- Stephanie Simons. Right. Uh, those are the ones I'm thinking of. But then 21st century yoga and yoga PhD came along and uh, they were just such a blessing for helping me begin to reconcile what I thought were disparate worlds. Mm. Well, you know, they are pretty disparate worlds, although the convergence has grown quite quickly. Um, I would certainly say, as someone who is socialized in um, academia at an earlier time, when, like when I was at the University of Chicago, um, we were just 
me and a, a few other students and a few faculty were kind of laying the groundwork for what's now like this big, um, I guess they call it study for the study of race, culture and society or something like that. But it was just like a few of us meeting in a like little room somewhere, some, you know, it, it was, it didn't have the support, the sanctioned support of the university. There was no gender study at university of Chicago is a more conservative school in a lot of ways, but still it was just like at the very beginning of all that, which you went into something very full blown like that just didn't exist. That didn't exist when I was in graduate school. Oh, this was and at then, a, this was at a conservative university trying to be less conservative. <laughs> but it was also later. I mean, I think it was probably 10 years later, yes. a lot changed. It was the same with the yoga stuff. Like, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, yoga just was not very popular. I mean, literally when I came back from Minnesota, it was still, uh, I guess the mid getting toward the late nineties. And I looked around for yoga studios in Chicago I mean, there were like two, you know, it just, it really blew up in the late nineties and early two thousands really, really quickly. And just, got this huge momentum that hadn't been there before. So I guess this is all to say I can certainly see why with you being in the thick of these two things, which had taken off and become very kind of jet propelled, but we're still basically new. Um, there was definitely not a sort of dialogue there um, because both the things in themselves had had as far as I know, at least, kind of really pretty recently burst onto the scene with that sort of, you know, presence. And um, but since and, and when I started doing those books that we've been discussing, I looked around. There wasn't much, you know, I mean, Mark's Mark Singleton's book came out and Stephanie Simon, like you said, uh, some others in 20, 2010. Um, but before that, it had been really a pretty open field. And um since that time, I've seen, you know, more and more people I hear about doing dissertations on this sort of thing. There's more books. There's, I mean, there was a huge online explosion of writing, obviously. And I mean, again, things have just changed so much. Like the whole discussion is in a completely different place now than yeah. when I was working on those books and published them I'm, radically different. I'm not sure if you've revisited any of the essays, but one of the essays in 21st century yoga says that people are more likely to spend their money on a yoga and chocolate workshop than they are on Ayurveda. And I, I reread that recently and, and thought, well, that's not true anymore. I mean, people are still definitely doing yoga and chocolate, <laughs> but but Ayurveda yeah. has a strong, uh, popular presence now and, and ever increasing. Yeah. I mean the whole thing, like it, it, it's, it's the full spectrum, right? I mean, there's more of the yoga and chocolate. There's more of the Ayurveda. There's more of the athletic yoga. There's more of the restorative yoga. There's, you know, there's goat yoga. There's, you know, there's a very wide spectrum of things that don't really seem to have a lot of singular coherence anymore. You know, um, I feel like when I started practicing yoga, there was more of a loosely unified yoga culture. Now, true, people were very split about their methods, you know, so Iyengar versus Ashtanga, I did this. You know, there was a lot of um, 
kind of passionate investment in your method often. Yes. But um, that really lessened. And but okay, so even with the, the the method thing, I feel like overall there was still a more common socialization into a certain way of thinking about what this was loosely, you know. But now I feel like there's much less emphasis on on method strictly defined and there's much less of a common unifying culture and there's many more of these kind of uh, they're not exactly subcultures but sort of niche cultures um, that can be you know radically different from one another in terms of their concerns interests orientations you know understandings of what they're doing by you know that's my sense yes and you you talk about that in yoga phd the the comfort or extreme discomfort that a lot of the yoga community has with with what sometimes seem like opposing facets of the yoga culture in some ways i i almost think of it as people who sort of take the it's all yoga or it's all good uh, stance mm. and other people who fiercely defend the boundaries of what is and should be yoga. Yeah, in one way or another, though, that's always the spectrum. <laughs> I mean, the sort of for the, the sort of defining what is that shifts over time uh, to different definitions. But yeah, I would I would agree that that's uh, the the kind of um, scale right uh, that I, I've seen that stayed stable over time you end yoga PhD by saying that you're hopeful for a more socially aware and socially engaged spirituality have you mm. have you seen that in the six years since you published the book well you know it's um, let's say yes and no right I mean um, I've been very involved in a particular, um, well, with a particular organization in, in a particular sort of niche of the larger yoga world, the Yoga Service Council and that world. And so it's a lot of people who do things like, um, again, teach yoga in prisons or schools um, to veterans, um, that sort of thing. And um, that's really grown a lot. And I think become increasingly sophisticated uh, in terms of our self-understanding, our um, uh, sort of professional standards, expectations, honing and best practices. Uh, certainly, the the world of institutions and organizations that um, this sector is trying to interface with has become more and more interested in in what yoga has to offer, more welcoming, um, that sort of thing. So. I'd say that has gone in a way I've been really happy with, but, um, you know, more broadly, the kind of politicization of the yoga world has uh, brought with it a lot of problems that I really didn't anticipate whatsoever when I wrote Yoga PhD. And uh, I think I was at that time seeing things a bit through uh, not rose-colored glasses exactly, but, you know, I had this kind of aspirational hope that uh, as that there would be more kind of social awareness in the yoga world and that it would all sort of channel into um, a pretty kind of sophisticated mixture of spiritual practice and social engagement and, and sort of, you know, 
to some extent, political um, discourse and, and engagement as well. Uh, but instead, I, I think, and, and to some extent that's happened, um, and not just within the yoga service world, but more broadly, there's definitely people um, doing good work in terms of um, making yoga um, teachers and practitioners more um, aware of sort of the um, political relevance of their own position, of the culture and history of the practice, um, both, you know, historically and in terms of its contemporary social location. But that said, I would say there's also a lot, and, and really, certainly in the online world, it's harder to gauge the, you know, community level, because that's going to vary a lot. Um, but there's also been a growth of a really sort of um, crassly ideological sort of um, political discourse in yoga that I think is quite um, negative, really. Mm -hmm. And that that's the part I hadn't foreseen um, at all, you know, and, and of course, the whole political landscape nationally and globally um, has shifted tremendously, as we all know, <laughs> in the last few years. Uh, and the yoga world uh, shifted along with that. And there's some international developments um, that have really influenced that. So the situation in India politically has changed tremendously since yoga phd was published and that definitely has done all this as well can you we chatted a little bit about that uh before well there's a there's a couple of things you said i want to come back to but yeah we chatted about the political situation in india uh when we previously spoke and actually, there's news uh, on out of India the day we uh, are recording. Today is the day that the Supreme Court of India uh, struck down the law banning gay sex. Yes, I, I listened to that on NPR this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. But what is what is your interest and what what do you wish the yoga community was more aware of? Well, uh the, you know, in, in India, I'm not an expert by any means, but uh, I definitely have seen the impact of um, the election of Prime Minister Modi in India. So Prime Minister, sort of vaguely like an American president, um, but, um, well, you're Canadian, so you have Prime Minister as well. But um, I get, I'm forgetting the year. I, I think it was... 2014 that he was elected and um, uh, he has been strongly associated with the um, Hindu nationalist movement in India and so as that has as he elected that's really sort of um, helped amp that up in the country and um, that's um, from what I understand a movement that um, is really positioning yoga more within a sort of aggressively politicized Hindu nationalist context. So yoga is very much part of uh, this kind of whole matrix of cultural and political developments there, um, which makes it a very different sort of valence than it used to have, where it was more part of this kind of um, 
interfaith, all faiths and non-globalizing, cosmopolitan, you know, sort of um, movement that now in India is in the U.S. and many other places, there's a big backlash against, right? So that's a, a sea change, and, and the position of yoga has been actually quite important in India with the Modi government. So, for example, they, you know, they institute International Yoga Day. Um, they have made yoga mandatory in, I think, schools, and I, I think increased in the military, there's been controversies about, you know, whether it's being taught in an appropriately inclusive way, you know, since there is a significant Muslim minority in India in particular, um, there can be controversy over whether yoga becomes a vehicle to sort of push Hinduism on people who are not Hindus, um, you know, and that if it's compulsory in school, for example, that can be a, a question. So, um that's thing the political and cultural location. I lost you for that of, sentence. Of yoga, India. Although, oh, I think that sort of thing has changed the political and cultural location of yoga in India in a pretty significant way. Although I think what North Americans don't realize is that this kind of association we've had with yoga being kind of on the left side of the political and cultural spectrum, I think we assume that a little more, maybe less since it's gotten so, 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 so popular and everyone, you know, and their dog, haha, literally, or goat is doing it. But um, yeah, it used to be certainly it was more associated with the counterculture and so on here. Mm -hmm. But there, you know, that's not so much the case. Like the most um, popular yoga teacher by far in India, Baba Ramdev, there was just a... Um, big profile of him in the New York Times magazine, which, uh, you know, it's very long, but it might be worth people trying to skim over. Andrea Jane, a professor of religious studies um, in, in the U.S., has written some shorter articles, but he's, you know, a very conservative figure on the cultural front. Um, so, for example, pushes thing, uh, ideas like um, yoga can help, quote-unquote, cure homosexuality. Um, so it's not... There's a kind of profound lack of interest, I would say, among most North American yoga practitioners in thinking about kind of the real on the ground political culture of yoga in India, because we prefer a more sort of mythic idea of India mm -hmm. as, you know, first it was sort of, you know, the ancient practice that's just been handed down you know, across these different lineages over time. Um, that's kind of what I was socialized into and many other people, you know, a little more back in the day now. Um, but Mark Singleton's work and, and that whole kind of wave of scholarship and discussion associated with that um, have really sort of torpedoed that um, easy assumption that what we're doing is like a 5,000-year-old practice basically unchanged in terms of, you know, what we're doing and how we understand it, um, yes. which is just flatly not true. <laughs> I think that's been uh, pretty well demonstrated and, and pretty widely accepted. But now, honestly, I feel like the cultural appropriation discussion has sort of morphed in a way it's becoming a stand-in for that, you know, so it's sort of like, well, it's not ancient, but there's still this, like, pristine, unchanged, true essence of yoga that, you know, is Indian. And, and, and if you, you must be doing that in order to be doing the real thing. But, hmm. you know, I, I, I feel that it's, um, 
Yeah, it's it's a big part of yoga culture here to um, have a kind of mythos associated with a practice that um, even when it seems to be more socially and historically aware, I think it, it's not necessarily, it's hard to make those things go away. You know, it's because I think we feel we being the average yoga practitioner in North America, we feel much more a sense of grounding in something solid if we imagine to ourselves it has some eternal, unchanging essence mm. that can be located somewhere yes. outside of us. You know what I mean? It's not just like us kind of making up something as we go along with a lot of other people. You know what I mean? That just like that sense of being yeah. rooted in something. Yeah, giving it a sort I think of inheritance. It's super helpful to, to yeah, give a, a feeling of um, seriousness and depth that um, people who get into it more, well, more seriously, you know, crave. And I totally understand that. Um, those are a lot of the questions I tried to work through in Yoga PhD mm -hmm. is how, how I tried to kind of think about that myself because I I do feel that yoga can connect us to something very mm, timeless. And in that sense, there's a certain way of unchanging, but yet I don't believe that in any, that can, like in the cultural framing and the actual understandings and practices that we're doing, clearly there has been enormous change. I mean, as we're talking about, even in you know, the last 20 years, there's been enormous change. So not to mention like 100 or 500 or 2,000 or 5,000. Um, so it's really the specifics absolutely we know don't say the same. And if the way you're understanding something is radically different, how can it possibly really have an unchanging essence? Like that's a big question that gets you into a lot of interesting questions about kind of mysticism or whatever you want to call it, like spiritual experience, um, which I think is really interesting. And I, I do think goes to um, some of the deeper philosophical teachings, at least insofar as I understand them of the yoga tradition, also Buddhism and, and so on about kind of exploring the nature of consciousness, you know, cause that's the part that wouldn't change is there's something about human consciousness when you're getting down to more that level of just sort of cleaner and cleaner awareness that that's the part that's that's unchanging. But then when we put it into words and concepts and the particular movements or, you know, all that's going to change. So yes. there's a real, there's a really um, ineffable and hard to pin down neatly um, kind of duality there that um, I think is very hard to sort of unify. That's that kind of challenge of non-dual awareness that I think, you know, for most of us, if we experience it at all, kind of comes and goes. One of my teachers, uh, Michael Stone, you can hear him in one of his mm -hmm. uh, archived podcasts say that he loves to come in at the end of a yoga teacher training when people are thoroughly confused. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who runs trainings, you know, makes that joke that I'm going to leave you with more questions than answers. But that's, uh, I mean, speaking of, of the non-dual nature of practice, that's the beauty is that these spiritual practices are, they could be entirely comprised by very simple questions. Who am I? Mm. 
you know, what is the, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> Why are we here? <laughs> you could meditate that on that for your whole life and have a substantial practice at, oh, yeah. at the same time. Once you start interrogating the history of the practice, you know, my reading list is really long and I, I don't think I've come to terms yet with the fact I'm not going to make my way through it in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. I feel- but that's, that's a good thing in the sense that there's always more to learn. And if we could do the whole reading list and put it all in a box, it, there's a certain sort of, um, I mean, death is the word that comes to mind. Like it's not a living, growing, vital, um, experiential process that way. And I think it has to be that. And I, I think that's sort of the, the mm, challenge of any sort of religious or spiritual practice or whatever that you see all over the place. Place. It's not just the yoga, but it's human nature. You know, we want to um, kind of pin these things down. We want to have a definition. A strength. It's not going to change and understanding and feel like we get it, you know, and um, like that I don't think is quite how it works. I mean, I do think there are there's greater levels of realization and deepening awareness and different levels of consciousness and a better and better understanding of certain questions like who am I and what is the meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing. Like I personally feel like the better people get at answering those questions, kind of the less ideological, less, mm. um, the less kind of neatly structured and, you know, every T is crossed and I is dotted. We like got it all pinned down right here. Cause when you get to that, that's fundamentalism, you know? Um, and that I think is a very, um, what's the word? Like, I don't, I guess it's, it, it's certainly pointing towards this sort of, spirituality that has, um, you know, inspired me, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure that people are having deep experiences who are fundamentalists as well. But it becomes a very, it's very mixed up with a very sort of aggressive power driven dynamic. I mean, yes. fundamentalism gets into a lot about, I'm right, and you're wrong. Our way needs to be imposed on everybody else, because our way is the right way. Yes, you know, and that is a, the sort of, um, you know, crass political level where it's just about power. You know what I mean? And that I think is, um, is just dangerous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we see that, uh, even in Canada (laughs) at the level of politics is, Mm -hmm. is a fearfulness, uh, uh, or a quashing of debate as if, uh, as if any one leader, any one politician were capable of having the answer, but it's, it's through debate that we come up with, uh, more robust ideas and policies on the you know, political side of things. But I was thinking about this earlier, actually during my practice, it was interrupting my trying to stem my train of thought was that 
you know, some of us perceive ourselves to be capable of being the whole cloth when really we're just a thread. And then others feel this pressure to, to be more threads than they are, but together all of our threads make up this strong, resilient woven cloth. And so through debate, we can understand what is lacking in our perception. Uh, but we, it's such a practice. We, we struggle sometimes to, to help people appreciate that what we have to say needs to be heard or is valuable or shouldn't necessarily be offensive to them. It's such a practice. Yeah, it, I mean, it's very difficult, too. The, the more you try to extend the circle of who and what ideas can and should be included in this conversation, because, you know, ultimately you get to the point of, can you include people whose true goal is to dominate and shut down everybody else? Um, and, or whose, you know, true goal is to uh, just inflict harm on, on others or some other group and, and so on. So all these kind of questions are um, roiling right now in our societies. And um, I think by and large, um, what's happening is that the tone is being set by people who are very driven to have very simplistic ideological positions that kind of have the right answers about everything important. And that's all you need to know. Now it's just a matter of making sure that everybody else get on board and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, people who don't aren't drawn to that, uh, which I think are, is actually the majority. Um, but the more those kind of battling currents are, um, gathering and force and momentum, the more you risk being attacked or, um, you know, derided or whatever, if you're not in one of those, in some solid camp, you know what yes. I mean? To just have a, a sort of, well, I think, you know, this sort of, you know, more um, idiosyncratic um, view or just want to discuss things because you're not sure and have an open discussion that become has become it has become very difficult um and you know the yoga world is is mirroring um that larger trend at least in the online culture more than i had thought and hoped it would getting back to our earlier discussion i had imagined that the you know the the practice would sort of buffer, you know, the um, sort of, you know, pull towards the, you know, sort of ideological fixed positions, because isn't the practice all about, you know, sort of non-attachment and, um, you know, not being like letting go of a like super fixed rigid identity and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I you know, clearly it's... Mm, that's not happening as much as I had, had thought it might. And, you know, it could be that um, it could be that there's a certain number of people in the yoga world who are who are drawn to it because they are looking for 
answers that whole kind of seeker thing. And as the world shifts to a much more highly politicized kind of dynamic that we've been discussing, that people get pulled towards that because there, there's, you know, there seem to be answers there. Um, and, and the sort of answers we've been discussing before that are not really solid, that they're more like always in process growing provision. Like those are, those are hard things to maintain in the current climate, which, um, has very little patience for, or space for, um, less than absolute positions you know what i mean yes. so it's a it's a difficult time yes and it's it's difficult for moderate voices to try i i think i wish there was a an ahimsa button on facebook sometimes there are a number of voices that that i used to be on fire for I thought, you know, good on you. You're saying great things. I couldn't get enough. And then over the years observed uh, this entrenchment of opinions and a few uh, a few publications that I wish they'd backtracked on and said, you know what, at this time, here's what I was thinking and here's why I, I was limited in my view. And, and on reflection, I've realized that this was not the right thing to say or do. Uh, but there was, uh, I, I didn't mention this cause I just found it today. I found, uh, um, an article that had actually been taken down. So you can't find it anymore, uh, unless you know how to go back into Google a little bit. And it was really, uh, harshly critical of a number of voices in the yoga community and your name was listed. Do you know oh. the medium article I'm referring to? Um, I, there may be more than one, oh. <laughs> um, but I certainly know of one. Um, so whether it's, not, whether it's the same one or not, uh, but yeah, I've been through a couple of waves of being trolled. Um, trolled. That's the, that's yeah. the word I'm looking mm -hmm. for. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I've just, yeah, I think that the online yoga, um, world. I mean, I just have zero interest in it anymore. Um, it's, I, I feel like the, the, the very aggressive, uh, sort of ideological voices have been quite affected at shutting down what to me is just interesting discussion. Like there's, there's nothing happened. There hasn't been anything that I've seen interesting for, for a while personally, because it's too, it's too polarized or else people retreat into a safer territory of like asking about, you know, more kind of technical physiological questions like shoulder placement and chaturanga, which yes. is just, I mean, that's fine. It's just not my thing. Although say, even there, even say there, you like yin get, yoga in one of those groups. Yeah. <laughs> even there, shred you. <laughs> jumped on for some, what I would think is, you know, a sort of more technical question. It's just, there's, there's so much kind of aggression that's been, um, sort of stoked somehow. It's just like looking for any outlet or, or, Hey, if there isn't one, I'll just create one. Mm -hmm. So it's just a lot of kind of ambient rage and, and, and really just meanness, you know, and it, it's disappointing that more people don't resist it. But I think 
it's too hard. Like, you know, you actually resist it and then you just get trolled. And, um, so I think what most people do is they just leave, you know, or they just, um, you know, they lurk eventually they leave or they, or they join, you know, they join sort of some bandwagon as their safety in numbers. Right. But yeah. So yeah, I'm not surprised that you saw some article because there's been, there's been several, several waves of that. Oh, I just found it uh, mm. sad and also amusing that this person was using violent language, what I felt was violent language, uh, mm. while also claiming to be the legitimate authority on yoga. Yeah, well, there's lots of that. Yeah. So does your fatigue with social media, does that happen to just, does it just happen to align with your shift away from... Uh, focusing your work in yoga? Is it just coincidental? Um, I, I think, yeah, to some extent, um, in that, uh, you know, I had certain questions I was super interested in. We talked about when I did those books in 2000 and so on. And, um, yeah, I learned a lot. And then my interest shifted away from these kind of high level, more intellectual, more abstract questions into work with the yoga service council, um, which is sort of like the, you know, know, professional shift I made before from academia to doing policy research. Like I've always had this sort of, I like the abstract intellectual stuff, but I also like the, kind of more practical policy oriented stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of did that in the yoga world's very parallel kind of trajectory. Um, you know, like the books I did for the yoga service council, best practices for yoga with veterans and in the criminal justice system, you know, they're really like handbooky type manuals of they're much, they're, you know, they're not, abstract conceptual kind of things at all. Um, no, no, they problem. are uh, incredibly, yeah. incredibly practical. I mean, you, Very you practical. really do yeah. uh, take a lot of the, the philosophical and the ethical discussions, but then distill them down to pragmatic practices. Yeah, that's the focus. And um, I, I enjoyed doing that. I really valued that after doing two of the books in the series, um, both me and, everyone else kind of felt like it's not my series, you know, it's, it's, it's the yoga service council series. It's time for me to move on. Um, so I, I kind of, um, completed certain cycles and then in terms of my own interest and, and work, work in the yoga world and the online world, uh, got very nasty, wasn't engaging or appealing. So it wasn't really bringing me anything new. And then we had this, um, yeah, the Trump election, um, I was very shocked by, as, as most people were, uh, whether being pleased or un- displeased. Um, I was displeased, still am. And um, I, yeah, I'm really thinking seriously about just orienting my writing back more towards a non-yoga, not even non-sort you know, sort of mind-body practice community more broadly defined, just more about, you know, contemporary politics and culture, because I have a lot of ideas about what's happening um, 
that I'd like to share, but because the larger culture has the same problems as the yoga culture, except even worse, <laughs> I'm a little unsure about whether I really want to do it just because, you know, trolling and all the stuff that happens, like once you develop some sort of voice or platform, basically you start getting attacked. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that is a real disincentive. So I'm just kind of right now um, finishing up some projects and, and editing an article and um, working on this yoga teacher it's not yoga teacher training exactly. It's like a yoga service training a bit for the council, winding down some work there and, um, you know, kind of re-gearing and thinking about making this shift and just kind of how much I'm willing to stick my neck out, right? Because mm-hmm. I do feel a lot of what's been happening, it really relates back to my dissertation, you know, like I, did, I, I spent years kind of thinking about the intersection of race and class in the United States and, um you know, studied the whole kind of history from the Civil War through, you know, basically the Clinton administration. And I um, therefore see a lot of what's happening now quite differently than a lot of my mm, kind of compatriots, like not to get into the whole thing. But for example, I'm not other than in a literary way, in a political way, I'm not a Tanahashi Coates fan. I'm just not like I, I think he has a very bad uh, so like there's no class analysis there mm-hmm. and 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 I don't feel like the intersectional like the intersectionality thing has become an ideology it's become sort of a rhetoric it hasn't actually become an opening into more complex analyses which I think is what it was originally supposed to do yes so um so yeah that's what I'm thinking about and honestly I'm kind of taking some time while I'm winding up some yoga commitments to just kind of go back more into my own practice and and study on a more just personal level like not to write about it not to you know contribute to an organization but just just for me um I don't know if you find this as a teacher and podcaster and everything else you're doing but the more that it becomes work even if you have your own personal practice there becomes a sort of inevitable tendency to harness everything personal in or work as opposed to it's like truly just personal and then doing work wise is just whatever it is i'm kind of trying to get back a bit um right now to that and um do you know like I, I haven't really gone and done like a yoga extended study you know away for a long time now I've only done you know things where I was teaching and presenting or you know the yoga service concert conference where I was at the board meeting and then helping to run it and you know so I, I I'm hoping to get some answers just through unplugging a little bit well, that was one of my going to be one of my questions for you because one of the things I think we we need to see develop in the the yoga community is identification as a yogi without being a yoga teacher. Mm. People really have uh, that label as as the defining characteristic of a yogi. Uh, which assumes that every person who's a yogi has uh, great teaching skills, which I'm, I imagine 
well, I've witnessed not not everyone has the natural gift for teaching, uh, nor the time or inclination to hone those gifts. Um, so I was going to ask you if you if you have your identity as as yogi at all at all problematized by stepping back. Um, actually, kind of the opposite. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I totally know what you're saying because that's how I used to feel. I was so intimidated. Like before, I did my first yoga teacher training. Actually, the first one I ever did was a very, was like a short unit with Shiva Ray. I was so intimidated because I just felt like yoga teachers were this whole kind of like, I don't know, like on the mountaintop kind of group of people that I just could never sort of imagine being. And, you know, I just had all this intimidation around it, a sense of not being good enough and all that. Um, And Okay, so after many years of sort of being involved um, professionally with yoga, my view has shifted, whereas, one, I realized that a lot of yoga teachers um, have a very hard time keeping up a really robust and sort of organically rooted personal practice because they're so busy running around trying to make a living. Yes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know that's a real problem. And, um, then I also feel that there's even among the teachers who I would say, um, really have something meaningful to offer. And many people do, um, there are a relatively small amount of people who are just so good at teaching asana that they, they have it from all these different dimensions at once, you know, like they really understand how the body works. They really understand how to sequence. They really understand how to reach a group and individuals at the same time. They really understand how to weave in a kind of deeper spiritual teaching without being heavy handed or trite. You know, they understand, you know, sort of the psychological and emotional uh, components of this. It, it, there's just so much to being a really good yoga teacher that, um, you know, I think the number of people who have really honed that extremely well is still going to have to be somewhat small. Not that you can't get a lot from a lot more people. And I guess as I started to, I started to feel like, hey, you know, well, one, my strength was never in teaching asana, although I did it. Um, my strength was more in the, um, conceptualization, writing, you know, sort of having hopefully interesting things to say that hopefully not everybody else was saying. So it was fresh. That was more my um, bailiwick. And then when I went into the yoga service stuff, more thinking about how to build an organization, how to interface with um, these different um, social institutions, um, bring in some of that, my knowledge of having worked in the nonprofit sector for quite a long time, um, all that kind of stuff. So again, this doesn't really teaching asana, um, things that help people who focus on that, but like the best practices books, but, you know, I, so I, I, I guess I feel like, um, in a way I never identified with being a yoga teacher as my primary strength, even though I was doing asana classes, um, ever. Then I got to know, since I was studying the field, I got to know, 
a lot more about the life of the yoga teacher. I got also got to know a lot more yoga teachers as friends and colleagues and peers and so on. And, you know, kind of the realities of it all sunk in more. So it's sort of like when I was saying about in, like people like to, people in North America, yoga practitioners by and large, like to have some sort of more view, you know, um, they're not really particularly interested in learning about like the nitty gritty on the ground, what's really happening right now, the culture and politics. And that's, it's kind of the same with a yoga teacher. Like there's a sort of myth that becoming a yoga teacher doing this training sort of vaults you to a certain level, um, which I used to feel myself. But actually I think the truth is, is that that can be one super important um, development in the course of having becoming a yogi in a more meaningful level. So I definitely learned a huge amount from doing a yoga teacher training and teaching yoga in all the different ways and being involved that I did. But um, like being a yogi to me is about your, it becomes about life as a whole. And so it becomes about um, how do I keep growing as a human being? How do I make, how do I live in a way that's of service to others? How do I connect to the best part of myself and connect well with others, um, both intimately and, and at a more community and social level? How do I connect with that, which is larger than all of us? And I think, you know, my view is that those those answers, it's that same non-dual thing, like the, the particulars always change if we keep growing. Life always changes. But then the core kind of sense of connection is what hopefully keeps feeling the same, even if we're doing different things. So I actually feel like the best way to mm, be more of a yogi is to be willing, if it seems time to let go of being a yoga teacher or do something else, to, to not be afraid to do that. And, you know, I've increasingly felt sort of like, yeah, maybe I meant that. It wouldn't be that I would stop practicing yoga, but if I'm, my goal would be if I shift to writing more about, you know, mainstream politics and culture and less specifically about yoga, that I continue to practice yoga enough so I can do that in a way that's of service, that's bringing in that kind of spiritual grounding, even if I'm not talking about it, that would be my goal so it's actually, so that's a big challenge, you know? Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I think about it. Um, but I think, again, the answer would be different for every every person, but it would be a good thing if people were less fixated on the title and the credential and more deeply interested in just how does this fit into my overall life, <laughs> which in the bigger picture is a relatively short um, time we have on earth. So how are you going to use your time as you have it in the way that's best for yourself and all else on a deep level? That's, that's the question. I'm very supportive of an audio podcast, but I've been sitting here nodding at my cork board. <laughs> Your books have been just incredible for for me as a practitioner. I know they've been helpful to so many of my students that I continue to refer them to. 
I'm so grateful for them. And I'm so grateful that you, you made the time to, to chat with me today. Well, likewise, it's really wonderful to be able to talk with you and connect in conversation like this. It's, I, you know, thank you for your time and, and for your interest in talking with me. It was my pleasure. I hope we get to meet in person one day. Okay. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's stay in touch and, cool. and hopefully that'll happen. That's me making you be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Carol. Have, okay, uh, thank you, have a really wonderful time uh, in what's coming. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you again for listening. A reminder that if you would like to find me in person, you can find me for an amazing four-day training, Understanding Moving Bodies and Developing Efficient Accessible Yoga Sequencing this November. Details are on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga. And you can also find me for two workshops in Toronto the first weekend of December. Details on the website too. Other than that, namaste for now, yogis. <laughs>